Embroideries by Nadine Aisha Jassett. Auntie sent a table runner from South Africa, hand embroidered. Auntie, you left the pins in. They caught my fingers in the unwrapping. Look here. Can you see the marks? And you have just heard the voice of Nadine Aisha Jassett reading from Let Me Tell You This, which is her latest collection of poems. Hello, Nadine. Hi. And um, so the collection is out now. Yes. On 404 Inc. And now that it is out, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about, one, how you feel about it now, and has it kind of fulfilled what your aims were for this collection of poetry? I think now that it's out, it's definitely quite a surreal moment in time because you're going into bookshops and you're seeing your book and your words and you're thinking, oh my goodness, anybody could buy it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully everyone will. And hopefully they will. Um, So you've got my first plug and we're only a minute in. Um, But certainly it's a very exciting time. And for me, you know, this book, as you can tell from the title, let me tell you this, it was all about an expression of voice. So to know that it's out there and it's connecting with other people is a huge thing. Um, And to see the, you know, the reviews from people like Jackie Kay has just been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it has been uh, very well received. Um, But I guess the difficult thing might be when, as you say, it's out and anyone can read it. Because usually when people send these things to reviewers and stuff, they kind of think, I think you're going to like this. You know, it's going to be aimed at people in that way. Um, Have you had, what has the feedback been like, general feedback? Have you had any yet? Yeah, the feedback's been great. And I've had like a couple of people sort of sending me pictures of it on Twitter, like from all over the place and not, you know, just friends, but people that I don't know saying I'm loving this and I'm loving the language and I'm loving the words. Um, And it's very exciting, but at the same time, I'm trying not to get too caught up in what other people say about it because yeah. I don't want to give too much weight to other people's thoughts. You know, I, I want to be like, this, right. yeah, this is my intention. You know, this is what I wanted for it. And then sort of let it go and, and not get dragged too much into what other people think. Cause that's a, you know, that's a spiral that you yes, can go down. absolutely. Yeah. I remember we did one of these with um, your uh, label mate, for a better word, Chris McQueer. <laughs> and, uh, and he was saying how, you know, he'd been, his earlier reviews were really good. And then he just he read one that wasn't that's yeah. good, and it really knocked him. And he said it, he was surprised himself how much it knocked him. So yeah. he just decided, I'm not going to read any, whether it's good, bad. I'm just kind of yeah. not going to do it. And I think that uh, idea of almost protecting yourself is is um, quite an interesting one for a writer or anyone kind of you know putting art out there. Um, I think particularly because you know you touch on. Um, themes such as um, domestic violence and race. Um, did that kind of worry you that these are these are topics obviously that some people are all too keen to stick their own in and discuss? Yeah. Well, so I think a lot of the poems about gender-based violence I'd released through my poetry pamphlet still. So it was I'd already had like a little taste of them being out in the world, but because still was with a much smaller publisher, I don't really think that many people outside of Scotland will have read it. Mm. Um, so whilst it was a little taste, it wasn't the full whack of exposure that, that this is. Um, but at the same time, I think, like I said, it was the story that I wanted to tell and you do have to find that line within yourself of, are you going to not tell the story then? Because you're scared of what other people will yeah, say. Yeah. Um, but I think exactly as you said about Chris, about drawing that line and not reading the reviews, because I know that I would I would hone in onto something and overthink it and overthink it and overthink it. So I am trying to kind of think, right, you know, you've done that now and it was wonderful, but you've done it. And then now let's look ahead and keep that momentum and that movement almost um, so that I don't get stuck in any one place at any time. It does, for me, um, what the best literature should do and it kind of 
walks that fine line between recognition for a reader and um, giving readers something new and putting them in the shoes of other people, you know, viewing other people's lives and more importantly, I think, understanding other people's lives better than that. You know, you've got a lot of things about family, which we'll touch on, which are, I think most people, if not everyone, will be able to find something that. And then you have other things which are personal to you, are yeah. very much personal to you. Um, how did you structure the, 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 all these kind of different strands? So I think, I guess, interestingly, before I fully answer that question as well, there was something that you said just there about that um, recognition, mm-hmm. you know, and that um, the, the political elements being woven through the personal and being in someone else's shoes. And I think for me, you know, when I wrote the poems, I was writing them for myself. Yeah. Um, and then it's only after, once you have written them, that you're like, actually, this does let people into my shoes in my world. And there is something in that exchange that's incredibly powerful but at the first moment of writing them you know I was I was writing them for myself and then it was when it came to the ordering and putting the order together that I really did think about how do these tell a particular story and not just for me but also a story of racism and resilience to it so for example there's a poem in the collection um, which is called Packy Hands which is about how this this racial slur was used and how I felt about it and how I felt quite silenced by it but then pushed back and when I structured that in the collection, I put it directly before the poem that followed, which was called Holiday Snaps, which is about my aunt's hands yeah. and the warmth that I feel towards that so that you you get the violence of the racism, but you also get the resilience and the love um, that comes from family and that resilience and love that is needed to sustain you through not just racism, but also from living so far away from family, from being separated across geography. Yeah. And I think you know, you're saying it tells it a story and tells yes. your story, and that's actually how I read it. It read yeah. it from start to end almost like a, a through narrative, but also the way the, the poems feed into each other. So yeah. the way that you've maybe viewed a poem when you read it the first time, then something else, as you say, will come after it, or even quite a few after it. You yeah. go, oh, I want to go back and read that again, because I think these are connected. And there does seem, I suppose, you're the connection. Yeah. That, yeah, that, yeah. That's it and everything. Um, yeah, it, poetry collections often don't work in this way. They don't tell a story in this way. Was that something that you set out to do? I think that's just who I am. You know, I think there's... And there's something interesting because I'm not coming to poetry from um, a particularly academic place or a place where I have read lots and lots and lots of different poets' connections and, and know the do's and don'ts. You know, I came to poetry because there were stories that I wanted to tell and so there's no as most poets do. And so there's no surprise, I guess, to me that, let me tell you this, is that story from start to finish. You know, it starts in childhood and family and and ends very much with a sense of finding voice, but goes backwards and forwards. Mm. So for me, I guess I see it as a a piece of storytelling, um, first and foremost, and a poetry collection as well. But certainly my intention was very much that it should be read one poem after the other, start to finish. Not only because it took me ages to order it. Um, <laughs> you know, it took ages, you know, so much pain. <laughs> yeah. And it's split into three sections. You've got mm-hmm. hands, words, yeah. and, and voice. And um, 
Hands is an interesting choice. Words and voice, you might, can, might expect yeah. from a poet. Yeah. So explain why hands is the first section in it. So I think I'm just a bit fixated on hands. Um, I think I notice when I read a, when I read my work back and read my work through, even before this, that hands came up again and again and again in the poems that I was writing. Um, and that there was something about hands that I was fixated on in terms of how they express a person or connection between people. And then when it came to naming that first section, it was because I felt not only is hands a way that we tell a story or that I tell a story, but that also hands captured that family love and resistance, the family hands, you know, as well as the violence that comes from other people's hands mm. as well. Um, and it seemed to have that perfect duality. Um, and so, yeah, it seemed the right one to start with. It's, it is interesting because I had thought about it and then, um, you know, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I've got hands, but <laughs> wide hands and it is yeah. such an important part of um, any kind of conversation. Yeah. You know, um, as you say, they can indicate violence, they can indicate yeah. welcomeness, and um, and it's a great opening section to the collection as well because you introduce us to, I suppose, characters which who in different ways come and go throughout. You know, mm. you've got your father and your mother, and and they return to them, and that's I think the sections that a lot of people will identify with um, maybe it would be nice to read something from that section yeah I could read so the old codgers captures my mother's and father's voices and their accents so I can read that one Um, and it's I always like to say when I read the old codgers that it was named by my mother So I said to her, I wrote this poem when I was in Cape Town with my auntie and cousin, and I said to my mum, oh, I've written this poem about you and dad and about your accents, what should I call it? And she goes, oh, just call it the Old Codgers, just name it after us. So, the Old Codgers. My parents' mouths pull at the corners of mine. A tug I'll try share with yours if I sing to their tune. My father's is a dance of Hindi meets Shona meets Gujarati meets Afrikaans, where a woman is a honey, a child, a lighty, and heaven help you if you hear footsek, kutri, or woe. I grew up fluent in the tightened jaw of the old Bali on the phone. Hello, this is Mr. Jassad speaking, his accent so suddenly English from a county we'd never visited, never mind own. Me mother, all Yorkshire, all drawn out vowels, calls a poem a poem and greets auntie with a rounded mouth and the India of her mind pressing on her tongue. She releases each sentence as a question, punctuated by an outside laugh that makes me want to ask who it is when it's at home. And I. I say oat and note and summerton in it. I say lychee, not lychee, samosa, not samosa, and I and arse and loo and snicket. Bath is never bath. Room is never rum. And when I greet you, I may say, now then, just like my mum. And when I leave you, I may say, assalamu alaikum. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank I you. I think so relatable as well. This, well, all I can say is my reaction to it, but... Um, the certain words that you're not supposed to say because, you know, it's not up here. They used to say, oh, it's not the Queen's English. You know, exactly, exactly. Um, and yet you, you heard them in the playground or you heard them, you know, at home or something like that. Um, but what I rarely heard until I started to get into kind of Scottish literature and Scottish writers was it on the page or, or um, done, use it artistically. Was it the same for kind of, you know, the, the language that you grew up? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why, you know, 
part of how I came to poetry and, and to being a writer of poetry was through spoken word, you know, and through how people spoke and read. So I used to watch a lot of Andrea Gibson, who's a US poet on YouTube. Um, I'm a huge fan of Holly McNish and mm -hmm. how she does use real language and real themes. Um, and I think I found that, that it's okay to write about the everyday really empowering. Um, and with the old codgers, there's, what's interesting is the language in there, and I talk about this in the glossary, the language in there is not just sort of um, Hindi words or Shana words or Gujarati words, it's also Jasset family interpretations yeah, of those yeah. words. So for example, the word Kutri in that, that would have originally been taken from Kuta, um, which is Hindi, which means like bloody dog, but because my part of my dad's family would have migrated through India via Zimbabwe um, in this complete different mix of everything that the word got translated somehow to Kutri. And I don't know if that is a Zimbabwean thing or if that is just my family thing. And so when it came to putting together the glossary and thinking about language, I was like, I want this to be a glossary of the words that I use in relation to my family and nothing else. I think the glossary is fantastic because it could almost be read as a poem itself. Well, well, there you go. Maybe we should market it like <laughs> <Yeah>. that. Because <laughs> the one at the end, there's a term, woe, a term used for burdensome relationships. For example, in-laws are often constructed or referred to in this way, as taught by the old Bali, often met with a humorous eye roll by my mother. Yeah. And that's just fantastic. <laughs> Thank that's you. That's an image in itself, isn't it? Just yeah. going, oh, no, not again. Yeah. I wanted that like heart and that family and that truth to my own voice and my own experience to run right through, you know, right through the collection. Um, it's also a, a very honest um, mm. collection of poems. And one which, uh, again, struck a chord with me is, well, there was two, actually, Inheritance and Let Me Tell You, both of mm. which I think seem to deal with anxiety, which is something mm. I've had uh, mm. struggled from from time to time. And, and there's a lot I'd like to ask you about that, and maybe we could hear one later on. But... You are a performance poet, and yes. yet, you know, it's about anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, and I always think, you know, I do things like this, record podcasts and cheer events and all that, and I suffer from anxiety and panic attacks and things like that. And I sometimes think, why did I do it? I have this <laughs> compulsion to do it. So what is yeah. it for you that you want to get up and, you know, and speak yeah. to a room full of strangers and read your poetry? But I think as well, you know, for me, the anxiety is not necessarily in the public speaking. Like, mm. everybody's anxiety is their own personal yes, beast, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so, often difficult to work out exactly what that beast is. Yeah, well. yeah, exactly. And usually I actually find that with anxiety, when I try and trace it back, so say, um, if we use public speaking as an example, you know, say, oh, I feel really anxious about this public speaking. Why do you feel anxious about that? Oh, I'm anxious about what people think of me. Why do you feel anxious about that? And when you trace yeah. it back and unpick it, the root is actually something very different yes. to where you are just now. And so in some ways, I guess there's something, I try and be a hippie and like when my anxiety is really bad, I try and like embrace it and be like, thank you, anxiety, for giving me the opportunity to learn about these things and release them. But you know, it's very hard to do that because yeah. at the time it just feels awful. Yes. Um, and so, but I think with my, with the collection of stuff, anxiety hasn't really been around public speaking. It's more just been about when it's there and it's out, it, you know, it's no longer in your control. Yeah. And it's, and I think with anxiety and loss of control is so key that it, it's a new thing to get used to. It's a new yeah. thing to say, thank you, anxiety, but we're going to release this now. <laughs> well, I think in a way that's, that's absolutely right because you have to face up to it yourself, I think, mm. before you can uh, come to terms with and talk to other people about it like we are yeah. doing now. Because yeah, I know yeah. when I was at my worst, I couldn't have been able you know, to, to discuss it. Yeah. And when you do tell people, when they say, what have you got to be anxious about? 
and you think, do you know what? I'm not really sure myself, but I know I am. Yeah, yeah. I know there's something going on here. And it's very consuming. I think, like, if you don't have anxiety, you maybe think, oh, it's just feeling like a bit anxious, but it's you know, it's something that physically affects your mm. body. It affects. It's that sort of for me. It's that spiraling of thoughts. You know, yeah. which is what I kind of wanted to capture in inheritance a lot as well of it's this cyclical spiral that it feels so hard to wrench yourself out of um and i think if you haven't experienced it you don't necessarily you know know what that is like but also i think for me there's just such a sense of validation when other people who have experienced it speak about it or when other people say you know acknowledge that you might be feeling that way because suddenly at least the stigma's gone but also like i said it's that validation it's that how I'm feeling, you know, it is okay to feel this way and it takes away the shame. Yes, that's yeah. right. And it's like you were saying, the collection, the whole, you wrote it for yourself, but then you find out that other people relate to it. And I yeah. think that's the same with discussing any mental health problems. Yeah. You find, you think, oh my God, this is me. And actually you find out there's so many yeah. other people that it's affected. Yeah. Would you read Inheritance for that? Yes, okay? of course. Um, would you like me to give like a little, there's a wee intro backstory to Inheritance. Yes, but definitely. Because I want yeah. to comment on that afterwards. <laughs> Um, so with inheritance, whenever I get a little bit too anxious, I do this thing, which is a very Yorkshire thing, um, of going and having a word with myself. And I'm like, I've just got to have a word with myself. I'll feel better. I'll just have a word with myself and it'll be okay. Um, and I was talking to my mother on the phone about anxiety. And then she said, whenever she feels anxious, what she does is she goes and has a word with herself. And I just thought, it really struck me that here was this moment where me and my mum had never really talked about this the shared experience before but also to know that we were using the same language to describe it without knowing I found incredibly powerful so I came back and wrote this poem inheritance she calls it having a word with herself my mother looking at me saying all the things she needs and doesn't fear does what it's supposed to to hold you tight until a word with yourself is the only way you can try to pause the descending Spiraling, tapping, trapping, paralysis, but for the beating fist, what if? But then, if I don't, if I do, anxiety. Four syllables given to this ceaseless connecting string, this genetic chemical taught, inherited, threaded, parallel between my mother and me. My mother and me, threaded, parallel between this genetic chemical taught, inherited, anxiety. Four syllables, given to this ceaseless connecting string, what if? But then, if I don't, if I do, paralysis but for the beating fist spiralling, tapping, trapping. You can try to pause the descending until a word with yourself is the only way to hold you tight. Fear does what it's supposed to and doesn't saying all the things she needs my mother looking at me she calls it having a word with herself um and that's really interesting because that that conversation with your mother talking about it i had a a similar one um in in my life and where these men stories came out from my mum saying you know I used to have to leave shops because I didn't know why, but I was suddenly sweating and I was suddenly, you know, that fear and all this. So I thought, well, I never knew this. Well, I wouldn't talk about it. So, you know, so I wasn't talking about it and she didn't talk about it. And then suddenly there was this shared experience that actually kind of brought us closer together, a a greater understanding kind of of each other. And there's lots of examples of that in 
the book as well because there are lots of family ties as we mentioned but particularly I think between um, mother and daughter is a really strong one yeah. so much so that it got me thinking there's stuff written about fathers and sons and there's lots of stuff written about mothers and daughters it's not a lot about mothers and sons in that in the same yeah. way in that kind of closeness yeah. you know that they have and I think I think in many ways that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's a really interesting observation actually, because you're right, and I'd never thought of it like that. And um, and often it was you know similar things, you know, whether it was cooking or whether it was you know learning to sew or mm. all these things, you know, which were kind of done together. Um, could you talk a little bit about your family's kind of role in in the book as such, and obviously it's in your life, but there's a few poems which I've just kind of really dig down into those. Yeah, Um, so I tend to think, like I said, there's three sections to the collection, and the first two sort of deal a lot with family. Um, I guess the first one, family show up as a form of heritage and connection and resilience, and then in the second one, it is that personal women's relationships in families. Yeah. Um, and it looks at, so there's a poem in there called Sam, which is on the face of it about my little brother. And he's called Samir, but he went through this phase of being like, I'm called Sam. And obviously there's political elements of the poem about that. But also the ultimate crux of it is he was named Samir because he was named after my grandmother. And so if he shortens that, he shortens the the story of the women he was named after. Um, and so, yeah, I think the storytelling of women and the storytelling of women's voices in my family felt very important because they're the voices that are often not heard and the voices that are often not valued. Um, And I wanted to capture that and I wanted to capture it with intelligent poems but also with love as well. And because there's an incredible warmth throughout the collection but there's also um, underlying anger as well Mm. at... um, and, and it comes in different, uh, not stages is the wrong word, but there's different levels of it. There's ones where, you know, it's kind of very obvious, but the way you've been treated hopscotch is a great example yeah. of that, um, which we'll maybe talk about afterwards. But then even something like um, when you're, uh, let's say something like Threads, which is a beautiful poem, and yeah. your grandmother, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah it is, yeah. Um, but you can all feel underneath, you know, these people's voices have not been heard and that's wrong, fundamentally wrong, that that that's the case. Um, Was that something you were aware of of all your poetry? You think that's something that's there constantly? I mean, I would would say the theme of voice definitely, definitely runs through throughout all of it. And I think think you can tell that I'm a massive feminist as well. (laughs) Um, And so I'm really marking this women's voices not having been heard. But also... I think there's an element of the connection as well where I guess I deal with that slightly playfully to give a different side of the story. For example, there's poems like Bite, which on the surface of it, it looks like a retelling of Snow White, but from her perspective, you know, of what was it like actually to live with these seven men who just made you do all the housework? And, you know, what was it like to be kissed when you were asleep without your consent? Mm. And that's how it begun, but then it it ended up in the process of making it a much wider poem about rape culture um, and about taking your voice back. And I think this thing of voice and reclaiming voice and giving voice to something that's not talked about definitely runs through all the poems for me. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about Threads, though, is that I think that's that's the one poem where voice isn't... It's not the one poem, a lot of poems where voice isn't political, but with Threads, the relationship with voice there is so personal because it's about... 
her slipping away through Alzheimer's, and I call her my time traveller, you know, she's slipping away across time, and the poem almost wants to sit as this connection between her travelling through time and me being placed here and this bridge connecting the two of us and the voice of the poem, I guess, is that is that bridge. The voice of the poem is that connection. Yeah. You know, it's those words on the page um, which capture her and capture the moment. And it's one, of, it's one of the poems where the words on the page matter how they look as well yes. as how they sound, you know, yeah. it's, it's written. Um, how would you describe it? So in the, in the poem, certain words are, in terms of the form, spaced or they drop off. Um, and I think this is about showing where there would be the gap in her knowledge and in her understanding because she's time travelling or because she's um, visiting in and out with her Alzheimer's. Um, so I tried to stage it to really try and capture some of this experience of what it's actually like speaking with somebody um, who's experiencing Alzheimer's or dementia. I guess looking at it now, it's maybe one of the poems, as I was saying earlier on, that I started, the other poems started to impact my reading of it. Because mm -hmm. you know, when I first... Yeah read it yeah. I thought this is just a very warm story of um, someone remembering their grandmother or celebrating their grandmother in that way and then as you read on you think well actually no there's something more going on here yeah. but I guess that's one of the great things about the collection is that there's yeah. all these different levels going on at, at any yeah. time so actually as a reader you, you do start to kind of layer them up yeah. into yeah. these things and we mentioned um, Hopscotch, and that's one of the more a uh, powerful poems. Mm. Um, and again, it looks a certain way on the page yes. for a reason. It's kind of all broken down into yeah. individual lines, which are not linear. They're kind of they move across the page. Yeah. Um, so, could you explain a little bit about Hopscotch? Yeah. So, Hopscotch is a poem that I wrote. I mean, I wrote it back in twenty fourteen. Now, I think, and it is made up of all different words that men have said to me on the street. So the reason, for example, on the page that it sort of skips here and there is to really emphasize, emphasize this feeling of these words coming at you from all sides. Um, and it really felt that, you know, anybody who's experienced street harassment and who's experienced like racist, sexist, Islamophobic things said to you on the street, it can feel so voiceless in the moment because you're shocked, you're scared, um, you don't feel that you can speak back. And then further after that, you might say to somebody, oh, this happened, and someone might, the person you tell their response might be victim blaming or minimizing. And I think for me, I just found it incredibly silencing. I found it incredibly silencing that I was walking around with all of these words that other people had said to me on me, mm. but they didn't even give a second thought about likely. Yeah. Um, and so hopscotch came about as my way of wanting to take the power back, I guess. Um, and like I said, I, you know, I felt that was at a time where I was very much, you know, I was writing my poems. For me, I was writing it to be cathartic. And so the form in Hopscotch, it wasn't necessarily even conscious, you know, it just it just came out naturally like that as what I felt it needed to be. Right. Um, and then at the end, when I looked back on it, I was like, actually, you've really captured something here. Yeah. Um, and then it was adapted into a film, oh, into a wee it? film poem. Yeah, there's a film poem of Hopscotch, and it's got my face, but they've got um, a different... There's a, a voice actress who's got a Scottish accent because um, they wanted... There's so many resources, right, that are used, because it's used in stuff like used in schools oh, now, yeah. and yeah, and so many resources are used by someone with an English accent, right? And mm -hmm. I think they, they wanted a Scottish accent, but yeah, it's my, my face. Um, and it was filmed in Edinburgh, 
and made by a director called Oksana Vilk, um, who was wonderful to work with. So that's exciting as well to see it in its different incarnation, you know? Um, where would people find that? Oh, you can get that on YouTube. Yeah, yeah if you put in Hopscotch Nady Naisha Jasset, you'll get the trailer and the and the film. Yeah, um, so yeah, I'll put watch a link it. To that on the website. Oh no, please do. It's quite it's, it's hard hitting. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Just as an aside, you say it's on YouTube, and earlier you said you saw um, different poets on YouTube, yeah. and it does seem that there there's so much. We know there's so many other ways of getting things out there. Um, Whereas for a while the poetry world was seen as quite a state, mm. you know, people maybe, as you said, maybe academics and that, mm. the way that, that they, they looked at it. But performance poetry and spoken word events just seem to be in such a healthy state at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, you know, you do quite a lot of them, don't you? You do quite a lot of spoken word events and stuff. I do. I'm, I'm blessed that people want to hear me read my poems. <laughs> but what's your experience of often at the moment? Because as, as someone who sits in the audience, yeah. it seems really uh, in a good place in Scotland just now. Yeah, I think, you know what? I feel like something has lined up and I've sort of come into being as a poet exactly the right time because there's so much stuff like loud poets in Edinburgh that are really like showcasing a, a spotlight on poetry and it's I think maybe because there's a lot of spoken word stuff is quite political and I think mm -hmm. we're in a time now where people are reaching for political poetry because everything feels so hectic or overwhelming or just scary you know in terms of the rise of the far right um, and I think people may be seeing spoken word poets as a, a new way that they're engaging because of this political need just now um i think what's also lovely about being invited to read at the, all these spoken word events is that i get to meet so many other spoken word yeah, poets yeah. and like there's some people like iona lee mm -hmm. it's just i just love iona i've seen her read it a couple of things and i love 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 her work um and how it captures this there's this sort of like sly dry humor to her stuff but again it's also very raw as well in, in some places um so yeah it's really exciting to be a part of and i feel very glad that i'm placed where i am um, and that i get to be part of these because it it people are this is another thing people are attending when i started going mm. to some poetry readings you know there was sometimes more people on stage than there was in the audience unfortunately but now you know events like ones you're talking about like sonic youth are, 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 are selling out and um and giving different people mm. a voice, which I yeah. guess is what you're seeing is, is happening at this moment. And it's nice to see it as well in a sort of UK context, because I watched like a lot of button poets. So on YouTube, there's like the button poetry and it's great. And it was a great way to introduce me to spoken word. And But I was, it's always like American poets with that. And so it's really, really nice to see it um, in like a, a UK context and in like a Scottish context, especially where you're seeing people, you know, doing their poetry in Scots and stuff. And yeah, I just love it. I could speak about spoken word all day. <laughs> <laughs> um... I, so you're talking about voices that mm -hmm. maybe haven't been heard. You're on um, 404 Inc. Yes. And it does seem to me that uh, they are doing exactly that. They're kind of, you know, well, with Chris's working class short stories, mm -hmm. not just set in Glasgow, but specifically in East End of Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And um, you've got your own stuff. And you also had the phenomenal success of Nasty Women, yeah. which seemed like a really defining publication yeah. Um, not just for 404 I think in general it really kind of captured the, the moment in time and, and also there's the Queer Words anthology We Were Always Here which has yeah. just come out I think as well yeah. but it's coming out um, 
Is that a fair thing to say? Do you feel that that's what they're trying to do, or am I putting too much on? on no, I think they're. I think for for very conscious and clear um, and transparent that they're trying to sort of not only shake things up in publishing, but that also they want to help give a platform to underrepresented voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're very clear about that. And, you know, I've had... Because I first worked with them on Nasty Women, and it's really interesting that, you know, I saw the call for Nasty Women submissions on Twitter, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to submit anything. I'll never get in. And, you know, all of this self-doubt. And then Heather McDade, actually, from 44, she saw me at an event um, reading a poem called Scott Mid, and she approached me, and she was like please, can we have you in this anthology? And I think that's been my experience of them from start to finish, is that they have had this belief in me and they have this belief in, in their authors and they champion them. Um, that's been, you know, incredibly supportive in that way. And, and it's, not, you know, it's, it's nice to, to work with an independent publisher um, because I feel like, I, it does feel like slightly more personal, you know, and, and for example, I was saying earlier, um, I was... There's a poem in here called Girl Time in Let Me Tell You This. And when I was sat with Laura Jones going over the typesetting, she talked about how one of the lines in the poem is technically in publishing called A Widow's Line, um, where the, the line goes off the page. And for me, the poem Girl Time is about grief and loss. And so it just felt so perfect. And so, yeah, I love that I've got that relationship with them where we can geek out about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I can turn to them for support as well. Well, I think that's a, a great term because they, they clearly understand, you know, yeah. the publishing industry and they want to change it they want to do something new and I think what you're saying about that personal relationship that comes across with every as far as I can tell every project that they do is like yeah. they will give their all to this project because they absolutely believe in it and that's not always the case I think in, in mm. publishing um, so who you say you, you talk a lot about the spoken word scene. Is there anyone else that you would advise people to look out for that's around at the moment? Uh, just in Scotland, you mean? Or like, I, oh, I yeah. could go global. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> yeah, we have people from all over. Um, so, like I kind of said at the start, I um, sort of started realising spoken word poetry from watching YouTube. And there's a poet who's an American poet called Andrea Gibson. And I think their work has got so much heart but it also is so fiercely intelligent. Um, And as an introduction to an example of this, I would encourage you to listen to their poem, Photoshopping My Sister's Mugshot, and I defy you to find a more intelligent poem, like it's stunning. Um, But I think Andrea's work also gave me permission to realise that I could write in my own way and in Mm -hmm. my own voice and write about these painful things and and write from the heart, and that's that's okay. like I've said before, I'm a big fan of people like Holly McNish. Um, I liked Caroline Bird a lot as well. I don't know if you've yes, read her recent yes, collection, yeah? Absolutely. In These Days of Prohibition, just fantastic, phenomenal. Um, I recently did a poetry workshop down in London with Rachel Long. Um, so she's a poet based down south, and it was an intensive two-day weekend on writing from intimate chaos. And the way that she just used free writing to structure that weekend completely opened something up inside of me and I just felt so grateful for this community of poets that we can learn from. So what's free writing? So free writing is when you start writing you're not allowed to stop so it's literally like your pen isn't allowed to stop moving so you can't it's with free writing it's about not consciously trying to craft something but it's about letting go and just going with wherever it goes and actually I think there's something in that where you can really 
access this it's almost like psychology like you're accessing this little subconscious part of yourself whilst also learning about what you lean to in language so for me I, I realized through my free writing just how much I love rhyme because even my free writing has a rhythm um yeah and it's to be honest again if we come back to the mental health you know it's it's really good for you I think yeah. just to have that um I sometimes call it like doing your laundry you know just to have <laughs> that like an offloading of just and see what comes from it um and there's a a book called The Artist's Way where they talk about morning pages where you sort of do a bit of free writing for something like three pages every morning and it is it's good for you it's good for the soul well that's really interesting um go back to let me tell you this mm. and what you just mentioned there a, a, the idea of being lyrical and rhythm because mm. I think that runs through it as well and you almost don't notice it oh I didn't yeah. I was reading it and then you find yourself that there is there's a rhythm to the words which almost kind of catch you unaware I think mm. um and I think, again, it's that idea that I, I had them, felt they were really literary in a storytelling sense. Thank you. But yet, there's a poetic, lyrical quality which runs through it. I think that is kind of what makes it a really special collection. Thank you so much. Um, what what's next for you? I suppose. What I mean, can you even say that? Because this is just now. <laughs> it's a bit much to say what you're doing next. But do yeah, you that's okay. Let me change that question a little bit. What about your life as a poet? I think um, listeners would be interested to see just kind of what that entails. My, my life as a poet. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I prefer the, the first one was easier. Oh well. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> go back to that if you like. Um, no, right. So, I think, for me, it's. There's always the question about money, isn't there? Mm. Right? Um, and how you earn your money as a poet. Um, and so sometimes I think I find the fact that I'm not, um, you know, independently wealthy or a lottery winner, a slight barrier yes. <laughs> to be able to, to focus time on my writing. Um, but certainly my... So I, my new work, I decided last year, 2018, I'd, you know, I'd pretty much finished the collection by March. And I decided um, that I was going to focus on prose for my year, which meant, of course, that suddenly oh. all these poems start coming out of yes. nowhere, <laughs> as they do. So I've already um, started working on my next collection, or could be a pamphlet, um, I'm not sure yet. And it's all about letting go. Um, so it's about whether it's saying goodbye to things, whether it's letting go of expectations on me as a poet, you know, and expectations of the language that I choose, expectations of what a poem should look like, um, but also letting go of things like the stigma around talking about mental health. I mean, you know, I know, let me tell you, this is quite an explicit collection, but I guess it's still me talking about things that I feel comfortable talking about. Yeah. Whereas, you know, this journey to be more honest about mental health, I think is coming through in my next collection. And I'm really enjoying how as a poet in my journey, how I'm playing with form a lot more to express that experience. I'm really geeking out yeah. um, about that. But also I am, um, I'm quite excited about some of my prose work that I've been doing. And I'm, looking forward to hopefully at some point in the future getting the opportunity to dive straight into that and I think what I find interesting is I think maybe as a writer I'm a life writer overall and it just comes out in different ways but also that I'm a poet overall and so even my prose sounds like a poem in fact sometimes I actually have to take out some of the rhythm because it's you know it's too mm. much um because that's naturally who I am as a writer and I, I find that quite exciting I like that that I can't take my poetry away from myself even in my prose it's there I like that yeah yeah it's kind of absolutely part of you yeah. I think if you're getting up and without thinking writing and, and, and a rhythm and a, a um, lyrical qualities coming through then that's probably de de definitely the case um, 
Can we get you to read, before we end... Uh, of course. Could we get you to read Threads? Would that be of okay? Course. It's quite long, but it's such a beautiful poem. No, it's always a pleasure. Um, so Threads, yes, it's written about my grandmother, the time traveller, um, in the sense that she has, she has Alzheimer's. And my grandmother um, was a was into dressmaking she used to make all these knitted jumpers I'm in fact you obviously can't see me because this is a podcast but I in fact have one with me just now um and I've always felt in my family that there's this connection between sewing and women's histories and women's heritage so this is threads in celebration of her at first we thought it wasn't as bad as all that everyone forgets with age and my grandmother always did have a taste for the dramatic now, over telephone static, your voice fades as fast as your memory. Threads of who you were offered to me, thin as loose cotton, stray from the weave and spiralled on your overcoat. Our conversations are limited. I can't ask you what you did yesterday or even this morning. Instead, I look for something to bind whatever you are able to bring to mind. I loop it like ribbon around the time between your thoughts arriving and leaving again. Today, that talk is dressmaking, which is somehow also your mother in the sense that you think I'm your daughter. I wait for you to call me by her name. I don't know how to dressmake, but if I could, I'd sew a quilt with patches of the way the women in my mother's family all wear the same face. And I don't. Something in my lips has been unstitched from this pattern of Collins women. Or is it Hinton or Udall or Emery? Maiden names made unchained and hidden in the seams. The author who could rewrite this invisibility. My grandmother. Instead, she is busy discovering a secret no one else knows. How to return to youth how to bring the dead back to life, how to conquer time until it's me who is caught behind, gathering frayed ends, trying to follow the chalk of her line as the present slips so far ahead that the moth-bitten past is all that we have left to see, and me, trying to use my words like stitches, afraid that without them we'll both be lost and all I'll have is memories and cloth, the itch of wool against my skin that you once held and shaped, now resting gently on my frame. Your needles clicking, your hands precise, your voice reminding me how to hold my tension, how to position my bias across the line, how to make something beautiful, something useful from tangled yarn and threads everywhere I look, I find things I have inherited. Perhaps I'll gather this too. Perhaps I've already begun to unspool and make my journey through time. Maybe there I'll meet your fingers and join your thumb with mine. Measure the distance as if it were a simple bolt across which our two hands now span. A poem for your thoughts and it a jumper made in the same way. Threads meeting threads meeting threads meeting threads. Picking up where we left off. 
And if that doesn't convince you to buy a copy, <laughs> let me tell you this, then nothing will. Thank uh, you. Nadine, thank you so much for talking thank to us Thank you today. for having me, Ali. <laughs> it's my pleasure, absolutely. And we'll be back soon um, with someone completely different. Cheers. <laughs>